This is quantization. Hi, we are Arezu Talibzadeh and Kavar Shurinia, and this is our podcast on inclusion. Quantization is an independent project with support of Inclusive Design Research Center at OCAD University. Hello and welcome to the 18th episode of Quantization. This is the third and last part of Utah and Bianca's discussion around the issue of housing. In the first two episodes, the Fungi Network and Salvage or Demolish, we heard our guests' opinions on the governmental policies, democracy and civil rights, and organizations and institutions, as well as notions like land trust and displacement. They talked about the past and the current time. For the last section, we asked them about the future and what technology could offer us to pass this time. This is episode 18, volume 15 of Signal, Hybrid Life. talked about making the relation, I want to ask a question. It is about the era we live in, the COVID and post-COVID. Some believe that in the post-COVID time, many things, if not saying everything, will be hybrid. We can stay and work from home, we don't have to go to school physically, and education goes online. It is an interesting option for many reasons. A broader number of people can participate in various activities, including working from home, or education and schools. Regardless of where they live and from where they want to do their jobs and study, our mobility issues will be less of a problem for many. We should mention that the notions of home for homeless people or virtual connection for those with no access to Wi-Fi are other points that we could discuss here. But my question is about the lack of in-person interaction between people and with each other. I won't have a first-hand experience of interacting with someone who may not speak the way I speak or is not the same color as I am. We can continue the list as cultures, interests, physical abilities, and so on. So is it not bringing segregation back to our society, maybe push us back even more than four decades? Something we work so hard to bring inclusion in. Don't we lose the value of learning from each other by being together? I would like to know your thoughts on this. Yeah, well, I know one example of this that I've thought a lot about is watching community consultations go online because it really shows an example of both what's good and what's a problem. So what's good is for some people, they're able to, you know, sit after dinner and just access the hearing or the meeting or whatever, and they get the information in and and maybe 
are showing up in a way that they wouldn't if they would have had to go to the community center or the library or the church basement or whatever it, it, whatever it is. Um, but the negative impact, and I think it, it speaks to the question, is that residents don't talk to each other, right? Like that's what you lose because when you go to those meetings in person, it's not just when you sit around the small table together and have the conversation, which is already not happening in in this in this format. Maybe some people try to have it, but it's hard. But it's finding, you know, like following someone in the door, seeing them at the water fountain, leaving on the way out, and all of the richness and the and and that that informality and that safer space to have political conversation that's not even as heightened as like when your little square lights up and you now you have to talk. Like that's intense. So I think it's just it's interesting that in some cases the access is maybe improved or increased for some, not everybody, of course, but that's one up. But then that like how we interact amongst each other, I feel in the way that a digitally mediated format like asks us to, I'm finding this time awful and some people are finding it easier. And so there's also a lot of personal variation in how these things are playing out for people. Because for me, I can't, like, even in a conversation, there's a lot of body, there's a lot of cues you make when, like, maybe you want to speak or you're listening really hard or you're, like, doing something and they don't translate. And then you get into, I think, feeling less comfortable um, with things that are difficult online. I find it very difficult to feel like I can have a hard conversation with someone I don't know online like you like say you say something really hard to say in the first place and then their screens frozen like I don't even know what you would call that feeling but it's terrible it's terrible because it's hard enough when you're doing it in Mm -hmm. in real life and you can at least like have your physicality to show support even if your words might be challenging right so like I think for the kinds of things we're dealing with this move I would if I had to put a number on it is net negative because I think the kinds of things that we need to deal with that we've kicked the can down the road on for so long is now just heightened and I don't know that we that we can get through that stuff online it's possible I'm wrong about these things because I'm saying it from my viewpoint but I find this stuff very difficult for interrelationships I find it tiring I find it difficult I I I hold back I'm care I'm I'm and in some ways maybe that's good because I'm being more thoughtful but I don't know that that's going to help in in all kinds of conversation. I'll stop there you I'm curious what your thoughts are. Well uh, um so my team in order to involve more people and to keep people on despite their personal situation has been working in a hybrid form for 20 years or so. And so we've been growing ways of achieving those those same things, which are very different structures that than are popular at the moment. So um, we have a daily touch point where everybody sort of fills each other in on what they're doing and how, what, what they need help with. Um, we have social, you know, a, a tea time, a snack time, uh, those types of types of things. So we've been trying to compensate for the fact that we're not all in one place by virtue of other things. We've also experimented with other things like an, a, a persistent open window where we have a screen that is always connected um, between different locations. The, there may be nobody there, there may be nothing there, but it to allow for that serendipitous bumping into each other and then having as many diverse channels as possible and allowing people to go privately to talk one-on-one in the middle of a, a, a difficult situation or 
uh, setting up mentorship relationships where you are responsible for making sure that this person is not left out of the conversation or is not getting their their uh, voice in and having the the largest range of options with respect to how you can communicate something ask questions bring up issues but it it also has involved reconstructing the notion of the balance between uh, or questioning and supporting the balance between personal and work life um, the 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 position of failure and mistakes and you know that these are very valuable things to report the the admitting that you don't know something i mean all all of those have had to be reconstructed and that's only in a work situation that isn't in a where there has been the opportunity to get to know people and to get to know uh what people need um i i guess what it brings up for me is there a way to have that same growth of of possibilities within a, a much more informal social structure like a a community consultation or a community group i don't know yeah and and i think i want to give a um it's so interesting to hear how much creativity you just displayed and like all of these things and like seeing this as a, a chance to someone said to me the other day that it's 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 almost the hardest to be creative when you have no constraints that constraints help you because they give you, and I've, I've, I've made some of this argument even with innovation, like give people rules so that they can innovate within those rules. Like don't think it's a free for all, which is how I would characterize the state of some national governments, which is just do whatever you want. Um, so I think in, as, as a good example, I do want to bring up, so the report that the, for the uh, Friends of Chinatown, the, there was a report done and it's called Community Power for Anti-Displacement, an Inclusive Future for Downtown Chinatown. And that meeting of 160 people where they went over some of this was an online consultation where it felt like the opposite of uh, maybe like a city, you know, a, a city run a consultation because it's not exactly different in every way. You know, you still present some material, you have a few people speaking, you open it up, you have a chat, you have, you know, things going on. But the energy and the way to approach that opportunity there was actually quite beautiful. You know, it was encouraging and it was like everyone was kind of figuring out how do we make the most of this moment. Um, and so I, I, I think like these are just these examples of like there are so many uh, points for each side of the ledger on the trade-offs discussion, you know, like what's good, what's bad is the accessibility versus the experience. And um, I, I do think that the the types, the ways that people communicate, I've thought about this so much and I know this is a bit meta, but like the time before email was prevalent, the texting and don't call me if you don't tell me that you're calling me the like voice versus text, the surveillance nature of writing everything down all the time. Like that's interesting. Like just, just how the nature of these mediums affects um, our ability to mm. like, to have something wrong, to do something wrong, to say something wrong. There's a culture of, you know, I've, I've got receipts on what people did or said or whatever, which is good for accountability. Absolutely a thing you should do, but also makes it a bit harder for that, some of that evolution and the growth to happen because it's really difficult to have an entire view of like what interactions are like and what engagements are like and what conversations are like, right? So I think, I think there's a lot of under-discussed elements of like how surveillant 
all of these systems are, you know, like even if they're intended to be supportive of better engagement, communication, whatever else, they still capture in a way that like, Mm -hmm. I don't feel as though there's enough thinking of, I know surveillance study scholars have been thinking about that for a long time and have said it forever, but I was on some, like part of some discussion with, uh, Jesse Wente, it, it was at it was it was about um, it was at six degrees, and it was just a conversation about society and democracy. And I think he said something like, "Whenever I do this, it's like you know you know you're going to kind of get it wrong." But basically, it was like he was saying, you know, if you would have told me we'd be carrying around surveillance devices, or you know, basically carrying them around ourselves voluntarily, meaning the cell phone. He's like, "I like that's just hard to," and and I don't think people stop enough and and acknowledge that that's what's happening. And I don't mean this as someone who runs around the world thinking about that from a state or private actor use of data way, I mean it, how does that affect how we engage with each other? What does our like surveillance of each other mean? What does the surveillance as a default and 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 how we communicate mean? And for our governance and for our conversations and our engagement, I feel as though that conversation always gets like framed into either the state is doing something or your stuff is being sold, but I don't feel we have as much conversation about the social implications of this surveillance. You know, like it's it, that word has so many different connotations and, and meanings and, and implementations. And I think it's it's an interesting element of this because there's almost like, there's not a thoughtful, for some people, it's not as comfortable to be texting and writing all the time, just like, you know, whipping it off because that's now, or that's a record. You've written a record. And I think with email, the way that moved through administrative just normalcy of anybody who works with computers having this long thing now of like records um, can be great and can also be a problem, right? Because sometimes I see people write things in email. I'm like, do you know that this is a permanent record? Like, are you really? And I can tell that they don't think about it as that. And I don't know that that's great, you know, I don't, and I'm not saying you should be doing nefarious things and do them, you know, in ways where you're not writing it down or keeping track of it. But honestly, in terms of how we like create space for flexibility for like changing our minds and how we engage with each other, I'm not sure that we're enough talking about what this whole realm does for um, archiving memories, right? There are things in our minds that you're supposed to forget because they're terrible. (laughs) We're not giving people that much room anymore not to have like a really intense and detailed archive of their life. Um, And I've seen some really nice writing on that. So I know I'm getting a bit like out there with the, you know, where this goes from the question, but I'm curious, do you like, how, how does that land with you? Those, those considerations. Oh yeah, most definitely, and and of course, the notion of forgetting and make it, trying to um, bring back the idea of forgetting, but also the fragmentation of those everything being taken out of context. Yeah. Um, but again, I see that as um, actually being something that predates the web, the web, or the and the technology and digital systems has just exacerbated something that existed before because the, that fragmentation and decontextualization has been there in much of our knowledge gathering and our communication before as well. We've just, it's just become so much more amplified. But I mean, yeah, a lot I, I though, think, like I, I, I would argue it's a pretty yeah, significant yeah. <laughs> uh, ev- like next leg of it. Yeah. And the roots of it. Yes, I agree. It, it, it's definitely taken it 
as where before it was a minor underlying area. I also think that we have demonized mistakes. Uh, we are, we have fragmented and reduced things. Um, we it, it's again that denial of the complexity. So we lose the we lose sight of the relationships. Uh, here I am. I'm maturing. I am cycling back to this issue, and I've I've improved. And uh, this this record of a mistake or a failure or a something that I regret should be seen in the context of how has that contributed to my growth. I mean, there, there's all of those. We've lost the, the narrative at the same time as we are capturing everything. It's not just that the fact that we're capturing it, but how are we analyzing and using what we're capturing and how are we interpreting it? And of course, the quantization of all of this is something that is removing forgiveness for forgetting the notion that it isn't that what a single act is not deterministic as to our value or, or our intent that we are all a, a project in, in construction a, a work in progress yeah and i don't know other than faith-based rhetoric around forgiveness like where that and that's I mean, it's great that it lives in many just through different faiths. But in terms of like the idea of forgiveness, when I started to think about salvage as a term and I went down the road with it, I was like, is this like salvation? Like you get into these things where you start to realize that there is a very limited amount of language that allows us to talk about the forgiveness, the error, the mistake, the whatever. Like it's it's a very, there's a limited construct for having these conversations about you know, like moving along, like, okay, here's what we know, here's where we are moving along. And I think our ability culturally to talk about physicality and space, but not very well about temporal issues, you know, like time and um, time between and, and time since and, and all of that, like, and, and I know these are, you know, again, abstract and philosophical to an extent, but I think they, they really culturally matter in how we talk about everything. Like when we think someone, um, I think Desmond Cole today tweeted that there are rules about access to public housing for people who have criminal records and how unjust that is. And I know that's a very old example of this thing we're talking about to an extent, right? Like that's not the same as like from a surveillance, that's just a record and and, 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 and an implication, but it's terrible, right? Like it's one of those things you look at it and you're like, yeah, that's that's terrible. Like how, how much are we invested in like helping people keep it along, you know, keep it moving. And I think that's probably why in this moment, all the conversations about abolition and awareness of what carceral systems are, we're really having that moment of like, are we going to move this along into places where we all get to do better? And you could even challenge what the, you know, the, there's a whole bunch of questions about criminality and everything else that are their own, their own conversations as to what, you know, what, what our rules say is yeah. bad or good or whatever else. But my point is the way that that lack of forgiveness and that lack of being able to move on, like records, um, expunging records, doing forgiveness on things that have happened, I think just looking at it in its most physical sense right now and how it's affecting things like people's access to housing. Like, how are you supposed to move it along? Like some of the stories I hear when people are let out of prison and what they're let out of prison with and that no one was told. And then, you know, a woman died in Saskatchewan. This happens all the time. It's like, so you've got a family member saying, why didn't anybody tell me that she was out? And now she's dead. And that's an administrative failure in my mind, right? uh, Just in terms of like, that's a notification. Why wasn't that notification there, right? Like those are system improvements that might seem small, 
but are profound. So that went around in a bit of a circle, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so getting back to where are the origins of that? And, and um, we were talking about education. We're preparing kids to be surveilled to we're, and be prepared for the determinism of, of any failure or mistakes and to fear failure and mistakes. You fail an exam, the, your, your academic record is what allows you to enter into university or post-secondary education. This idea that you cannot progress if you've done some, if you have failed at something prior or there you've made a mistake before, um, and that it, it becomes part of your permanent record. Whatever you've done is captured in some sort of rubric and, and uh, adds up to a mark. I, I think we need to examine it in more than just the technical systems, but the systems that were there prior to the technology as well, and how we're preparing kids from the very earliest age to see this, uh, nor to normalize these types of practices. But do you see anywhere, because interesting you're bringing up education, because for me, my entry of interest into anything political was education system. Because I, just having gone through it, I was like, "There's this does not work for everybody the same way. That was easy for me as, as a young person to see. And it led me into learning about things like the EQAO. And this was when there was like a standardized testing push in the United States and then No Child Left Behind and all of this stuff was going on. There still is. Right. And and all of the economies of the like testing prep, LSAT, all the like there's so much in there, the publishing, the testing, the all the regimes that are part of that economy. And I mean, I think that's a really good question is within the Western scientific worldview, is there a methodology that would enable, you know, children to be moving through institutions like like schools that doesn't require that standardized west you know empirical like quantitative approach to saying okay you're good you're done like what what would the movement to require because that to me is worldview style right like that's that's a very fundamental mm -hmm. question and it brings me back to something that i that when we were talking about i wanted to mention because i think these are similar things safety when we talk about housing, there's an element of the professional that needs to be respected in terms of like building code, right? Like there are some things that are professionalized that are inscribed in science and they are good. And if they're not followed, we have a big problem. And I think this is what's interesting is it's like, there's always an element of that. And I think if I think about um, education, for me, that's literacy and numeracy to an extent is you need some of these things to be made available to you. So you learn them, you get them, and then you can like cook up your own, what you do with them, right? But they are things you can probably agree you need to understand, can you do this thing or not? And if you can't, we need to keep helping you until you can do it so that you can access, you know, unlock all the other doors of what comes next, maybe in your learning journey. Like, can you imagine what a next step in moving us away from the sort of standardized models are? I know so there's probably countries which are a little less intense on this, but just generally, because I see that like this is not just limited to education. This is like our whole society has this problem of like, how do you respect? Right. Right. But education sort of prepares uh, for it. And, and education is, of course, built on the industrial model, the idea that you're creating replaceable workers, that you are creating conformant learners. Given the emergence of automation, it's all those formulaic things that are going to be replaced. So we are preparing our students to be replaced. If you look at education, you can, at the moment, 
and unfortunately even the 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 push towards equitable education is pushing towards standardized education so i get the equal i get equal content equal assessment etc as opposed to equitable this is a this is a huge other topic but i i think we really do need to examine education and education i feel is the preparation for civic engagement yes. for participating in the community for all of the, the how things are valued and and it gets into our or it, it's the precursor to that participation in a supportive community that where there is not homelessness where there is the a system that can make sure that you have a home and that you can participate in that notion of home whether it's the private home or the the neighborhood home or the community home so and, and yes uh, uh, there are uh, I, I think we need a complete reform of what we what we prepare our kids for because we're not thinking about what they're going to be let out into the world uh, to do and we're preparing them to become um, or to to be out of work to be out of productive participation by the way that we've structured education at the moment but that, that's a that's a huge additional yeah. it's huge and whenever I get into this I always stop I'm like should I just be working on that like that feels like such and, and I think it, it also goes back to time and our inability to prioritize and invest in those changes you talk about because they do not manifest next year and they don't manifest in a couple of years mm. right like the work itself is long yeah. and then it the time for it to manifest is long and I think um, that is just such an important site of intervention. And one of the things I've been disappointed about in my learnings about education is that the advocacy is primarily parents, which on one hand, of course it is, but on the other hand, like everyone has a vested interest in how these education systems work, right? I mean, that's everybody you deal with mm -hmm. in yeah. your life. And so I, I wonder about how we invite more people into the education advocacy space that are you know like a, that's I think that's an important question is more people would maybe is it, it's just it's it's always thinking about like how do we do things differently that's kind of my question to myself every day is like I don't want to do things that were not working before I want to figure out how do we you know like try to activate new spaces and, and new models so I think it's important. It's important that more of us engage in education. Let's leave it there. It's a massive topic. I agree with you. There's a lot of hope there too, but a lot of necessary work because you can't undo it, right? That's the problem. Like you say, like you, when, when you, when you spoke, um, it was like this, no, hold on. There is actually a linear, the linear element of it matters, you know, like these things get entrenched and then you're trying to resolve them and, and people's lives later down the road and the, like myself included. Alas, I'll stop on that topic because I know we could we could go on forever. Um, is there anything else specifically <laughs> yeah. from the from the housing, shelter, homelessness? Like I feel like we did we did definitely bring it into more of um, the more specifics from our first conversation. But I'm I'm curious if there's any other lingering thoughts or you if you had anything. I can um, connect the education and housing. One of the things that we did uh, as a project funded by the Oak Foundation was to look at um, individuals with learning differences. And when we were invited to submit a proposal, 
what we decided to do was not to highlight the individuals with learning differences that were successful as models, but instead to talk to the kids that had disengaged or broken up with education and to look at you know, what, what were the learnings that we can learn from those individuals? What was the, what caused you to break up with education or to, or with learning? And one of the things that we found was that uh, among the people that were in homeless shelters, the homeless youth, the, um, anyone that were, was in our social safety net, there was a huge overrepresentation of individuals with learning differences that, for education had failed them, they had disengaged from education. And so whether it was recruitment into terrorist groups in South um, America, whether it was uh, sex workers in Mexico, whether it was child laborers in Lesotho, whether it was it, it, the overrepresentation of kids that had not done well in school was just astronomical. It was really heartbreaking. And that, of course... It, it's that vicious pattern that leads to having no uh, access to basic necessities. And I think it, it's true that um, I think education is definitely one area that we need to address. It's a complex system, but it is a vicious cycle. And uh, the, the one uh, thought that I have is that it goes back to more than 40 years. It, there are some very, very fundamental values that, um, or ways of interpreting the world and ways of educating, ways of researching our knowledge of evidence, truth, democracy, that we need to re-examine quite closely. Yeah, totally. And I'm, I'm, um, I guess my, my final thought on that one is, uh, that the idea of the, of course, I have to keep arguing my 40 years thing. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to argue my 40 years thing because my, my instinct <laughs> right now is that the public systems we have are being further privatized. And the, yeah. the, the accelerate, mm-hmm. the way that accelerated over the last 40 years and what it, what it is now beginning to foreclose in terms of us being able to exert public power over them feels particularly relevant because of the amount that 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 the outsourcing happened and the privatization happened and the management consulting firms have taken over the governments like these are pretty significant trends that accelerated in the last 40 years so it's not to say that 40 years ago things were fantastic what it is to say is that the things that kicked into hyper gear in the last 40 years if they don't, if if those particular things aren't undone, the privatization thing actually knocks the public power out of being an option. And I think that's why understanding how those manifest is critical. Never mind the civil society stuff we talked about, which has been terrible in the last forty years as well. Yeah, and um, add to that artificial intelligence and data. Data is about the past; it amplifies the past, and uh, so we're accelerating it even more. It's exponentially. Uh, accelerated those patterns that where it came in yeah totally and I think just to just to pin it so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pin it because I think it helps in the Canadian wrap-up here which is that the um, the idea that we can't go back and address like I go back from a reconciliation perspective you're talking about treaty you're talking about inherent rights everything that needs to happen in this country to address all of the historical wrongs will not happen through the private sector so the only way to turn back to maintain the power you need to go back and address those issues sits in retaining some semblance of public power. 
And that's why I think mm -hmm. it's not to say like, I love the saying that nostalgia is poison. It is such poison, like nostalgia and thinking things were at better at blah, blah, blah. Like, I love it because I am one of the first people who's like, well, this was the, and then you, you know, you realize the context. But I think that's the point is that it's not to say that democracy or the state is defensible. It's to say that it was 40 years ago or from its founding, but that without it, I don't see how we can actually go back and fix older historical problems. So I think that's, that's why it's interesting because sometimes I feel as though worrying about issues that are digital or AI or everything else. I'm like, wait, is this where we should be fighting? But if we don't keep the publicness to that kind of um, system set, I think everything else gets lost and foreclosed that we can't even go back and fix the other things. So that's my way to try to take like the where we are in time and the all the way back in time and the hopefully some kind of reason to keep to keep on it. And and I would add to that dichotomy that the we should think about not just private public, but also cooperative and um, where there isn't yet a formalized public structure. Absolutely, the third way, the salvage and the co-ops and the and the you know how, what what are the new ways? And I think that's also where the the land trust and the community self governance come in. So emphatic yes to that. Yeah. I see that public private is not the paradigm. It's the what else is there and how do we do it? Great. And it is good that you brought up the cooperative terms here because we have a podcast on that recorded about two three years ago. I'll put the link in the transcripts. You remember, Yuta? Yeah. Also, I'm glad that you transitioned to education. It's a complex and vital topic, and I am sure that we will return to this topic in the future, although we only touched the surface in the first episode of quantization. We haven't started it yet because the topic is really challenging and needs to link with many other areas. But certainly education is the core and essential part of conversations about inclusion and obviously a segment in the podcast on inclusion. Thank you both for being here and for the conversation. Thanks for listening to this ongoing conversation. It was episode 18 of Quantization, Hybrid Life. We want to thank Bianca and Yuta for being part of this conversation. Please share your comments with us. Check our website, quantization.ca, for more discussions and full transcripts, and come back for upcoming episodes. Marshall Biero composed all tracks in this episode. Quantization Podcast.